like to direct your attention to are once again found in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at Colossians 24 this morning, but for context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 24 and go all the way to uh, chapter 2, verse 5. So beginning in 24 to chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which Esther, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Please pray with me once again. Lord, we we begin our time in looking at your word with prayer because we are very aware that unless you work, Lord, these words could fall on deaf ears. Lord, even as believers, we recognize we need your ongoing grace in our life to strengthen us, to sustain us, to encourage us, to convict us, to direct us. And Lord, we don't want this time to be empty. We want help. We need your assistance. And so with as much pleading as we can offer, we ask for grace. Give us insight. Give us understanding so that we would recognize what your word's saying, that we would recognize its implications upon our life so that we might honor you in all the ways that you desire for us to live. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this next section in Colossians that begins at verse 24 and runs through chapter 2, verse 5, which we just read, it presents actually a full summary of Christian ministry. If somebody were to ask Paul to summarize the central tenets of Christian ministry, this, I believe, is what he would say. And so this, you can break it down likewise in this. He begins with the cost, which is ministry causes one to suffer for the church in verse 24. The responsibility of ministry, preaching in verses 25 to 27. The aim of ministry which is the building up the body of Christ, bringing it to maturity. And the struggle, the ongoing struggle of ministry is to see 
the church grow spiritually. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you'll see that this section actually builds off of Paul's statement in verse 22. That Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's speaking of the church there. And what I want you to recognize is that Christ's purpose in suffering and in dying, taking on flesh, living a difficult life, eventually being crucified, was so that the church, every member of the church, would one day be holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. And it's this truth that also drives Paul in his ministry to the churches. One of the first things that stands out in this section, and may may have stood out to you as you were reading, is the purpose clauses. For your sake, for the sake of his body, which was given to me for you. Even when Paul explains the, his stewardship to proclaim God's word in 128, he says it's so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. The goal is to bring about maturity. Notice also in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says his struggle is for you. And he explains what this struggle entails. Encouraging the church the knitting together of the church, instructing the church with truth, protecting the church from error. What I want you to see is how church-centered Paul is in his ministry. And that's very obvious. And it's because Christ likewise was church-centered in his ministry. Right? He died in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But other texts also emphasize the church as the central focus of God's plan of redemption. Amazingly, Paul says in Ephesians 3.10 this, that the ultimate aim of his ministry is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That his glory would be seen through the church. Later on in verse 20, he says, In his doxology, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, notice this, verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. There's even an eternal aspect to this. And what I want you to, to, to recognize is that the church is not a social club. It's not even an institution that we attend to learn more about the Bible and how to follow Christ. The church is the pinnacle of God's grand plan of redemption. This is a terrible analogy, but it's like the Super Bowl or the World Series or the the World Cup, the Olympics of God's plan of redemption. It's what everything is building towards. It's so massively important that Paul says he rejoices in suffering for it. Look at that in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. So the first 
tenet of Paul's philosophy of ministry is that the cost of ministry is suffering. I'll just what he says here about suffering in your outlines. He identifies that he is the person suffering. The purpose of his suffering is for the sake of the body. The paradigm of suffering is for filling up what is lacking. It's it's based upon Christ's suffering. And the proper response to suffering is rejoicing. Let's look, first of all, at his statement that it is he himself that's suffering. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. I emphasize that because Paul's not rejoicing in the sufferings of others. He takes no joy in the suffering of others. There's nothing about suffering that is virtuous in and of itself. But Paul rejoices in his present sufferings because he knows why he's suffering. And he's suffering for a purpose. He says he's suffering for your sake. Now, all people suffer on account of the fall. Death, disease, loss, broken relationships, difficulty in various forms. So he's not, he's not talking about just this general run-of-the-mill suffering that all people experience. Neither is he speaking about the suffering that all Christians will experience on account of being born again. That Peter speaks of in 1 Peter 2.21 when he says, For this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There's a, there's a sense that all Christians will suffer, Right? Paul writes, Timothy, all people who desire to live godly will be persecuted. What Paul is speaking of here is suffering on account of his ministry to the body of Christ. He's rejoicing on behalf of his suffering for the church, which is really clear. And it's evident in the New Testament that the reason Paul suffered so extensively in his life was on account of his calling to gospel ministry. In fact, the Lord made this clear when he first called him. Acts 9.16, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the cost of ministry is suffering. Now, every calling, every job has a cost involved. It could be long work hours. Some people work 80 hours a week trying to just make a living. Others are separated from their family for lengthy amounts of times. Some challenges are you have to work with difficult people. Could be customers or coworkers. There's challenging problems. You might be exhausted. Some of your jobs might be dangerous because of what you're handling and working with. The cost of ministry, if done rightly, Paul notes, though, is suffering. So how will ministers of the gospel suffer? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists the ways he has suffered on account of his ministry to the churches. I invite you to look at that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just a few pages earlier. Beginning in verse 23, Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. In other words, he doesn't want to get into this list, but he wants to show that he what he's willing to sacrifice for the sake of the church, unlike some of these other false teachers. He says, with far greater labors, 
far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. I'm sure if I was beaten, I would hope I could count them, but countless beatings. And often near death. Often. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Less one because the assumption was if he got 40, that's when people start to die. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without cold, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? So just in summary, some of the suffering that Paul encounters is he's, he notes his laboring, physical suffering. He, he's been persecuted, beatings, stonings, all kinds of dangerous situations, he lists. He's lacking resources, being without, thir- being thirsty and hungry, exposed to the elements. But he particularly highlights at the very end his concern for the churches. That's the biggest burden. And what I think is also remarkable is, yes, this is how Paul suffered, and most people will not suffer to the degree that Paul suffered. And yet, Paul tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testament about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. The implication is Paul expects all pastors, all elders, all missionaries, all those who call, are called to gospel ministry, he expects that they will suffer. Share with me, he says. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly command pastors to suffer. But I think it's implied that they will. And the reason why, the way in which they will suffer, is implied in the words that Paul uses here. For your sake. Ministers will suffer because they care more about the needs of the body of Christ than their own needs. And so it may mean that they're taken to the gulags. It may mean that they have sleepless nights. It may mean that they have to work 80 hours a week. It could mean a lot of different things. It's not formulaic. What is formulaic? What should drive every gospel minister is if there's a need, I want to make sure it's met at whatever cost to myself. Because I'm not what matters. What matters is your sake. Right? That, and we see the purpose of suffering, Paul makes explicit, is for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Remember how Jesus identified a good shepherd in John chapter 10? 
He lays down His life for the sheep. Paul writes, 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 1 Corinthians 9, To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that all, by all means I might save some. 2 Corinthians 4, we read it earlier, We're afflicted in every way. Then he says in verse 15, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul's point is, he so recognizes the importance of the sanctification of the church and the salvation of the lost, that he is willing to pay any price necessary to make sure that takes place. But we need to also see and remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 3. Suffering in and of itself isn't virtuous. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 13, 3? If I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Right? The purpose isn't just to, a, a pastor shouldn't just glory in the fact that they suffer because of, Illness, disease, persecution, because people don't like what they say. But if they're suffering on account of their love for people, that's something that's significant. Now, there's a lot of people that suffer because they're jerks. Or because they're lazy. Or because they're poorly trained. Or because they don't take care of their health. Paul's saying the suffering that, that, that matters is a suffering for the body of Christ. And that's not to make light of the suffering that all of us will face on account of the fall, for it's awful. But Paul wants the church to see that all the suffering of the world is worth it if they would... First, if people would first be saved and then cling to that salvation and grow in their salvation. So suffering in and of itself is not effectual unless it's driven by love for others. Just as a mother would willingly sacrifice herself for her young children to meet whatever needs they have, likewise a good gospel minister would willingly suffer to care for the members of their church. And notice how Paul indicates that the reason he suffered is because he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So, what does he mean by that? Well, clearly he doesn't mean that there was anything lacking in the effectiveness of Christ's atonement. Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to pay for all of our sins. And part of the reason we know he doesn't mean that is because the whole point of the book of Colossians is for the Colossians to recognize all they need is Christ. If they have Christ, they have everything they need spiritually. So he's not saying there was something lacking in Christ. At least in his work on the cross. So what does he mean? Well, again... Verse 24 is building off of what Paul said in verse 22. 
that Christ is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So in this statement recognizes that Paul is drawing out the continuity between the physical body of Christ that suffered on the cross and the body of Christ, the church. Christ needed to suffer and die in order to present the church as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Likewise, Paul recognizes that he needs to do the same thing. Right? Christ's suffering did not end with Christ's resurrection. Now, I'm not saying what the Catholic Church implies that Christ is still physically suffering in heaven. No, but do you remember what Christ said to Paul when he was on his road? the road to Damascus to persecute the church. The Lord called out to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The church is his body. And his body has continued to suffer even since the ascension. Christ's body, the church, will continue to suffer until it comes to full maturity which is Christ-likeness, when every member, every member selflessly and sacrificially loves one another the same way that Christ loved us. That's what we're aiming for. That's the goal of the church, that we would all be like Christ. And so let me ask this, is, is the church that way now? Let's just look around. It has a long way to go. And Paul recognizes that his responsibility is to finish what Christ started. See, just as Christ had to suffer to bring about the church's holiness, likewise, pastors and missionaries will need to continue to suffer to bring about this end. In fact, the root of the word filling up is turn. Literally, Paul says, I'm filling up in turn. It carries the sense that Christ suffered in the flesh for your sake. Now it's my turn. Now it's my turn to suffer. Paul's saying, now it's my turn to pick up the mantle. And that mantle has been passed down from person to person throughout church history. Where each generation of pastors pays the price to guard the church and to keep her And notice also that Paul's suffering as a member of the body of Christ again, is for the sake of the body of Christ. He's one member suffering for the other member. So spiritual growth doesn't happen without paying a price. There's a cost. Right? For Christ, that cost meant leaving heaven, all the glories of heaven, taking on sinful flesh. Afflicted flesh, I should say, bearing sorrow, temptation, suffering, the the challenge to obey the law completely, facing adversity from national and religious leaders and even adversity within his own family. And he ultimately lost everything, dying alone, humiliated, mocked and racked with immense suffering on the cross. And why did he do these things? 
122. To present the church holy and blameless and above reproach. And this is the same reason that Paul suffers. And it's the same reason that all good shepherds will suffer. If a person's considering pursuing ministry as a, as a career, I don't like to use that word, but as a, as a calling, they should do so for the same reason that a man marries a woman. Not because he's attracted to her merely, but because he cares so much about her, he will lay down his life to make sure all her needs are met. And this is why Paul rejoices in his suffering. It's just the fourth point. An Olympic marathoner rejoices in the, the suffering or the agony of training because they know there's a purpose behind it. They know there's a goal. They're, they're going to accomplish something in the agony. What does suffering accomplish in ministry? Well, the first thing suffering accomplishes is it validates the messenger and the message. It shows that it's real. It shows that they're, they're speaking the truth. Like, as the author of Hebrews states in Hebrews 11, it validates our faith. It shows that we, we really believe what we believe. And as Jesus said, when the hired hand faces down a wolf, he flees. But the good shepherd lays down his life. Because, and that's in laying down his life, he shows he's real. He really, he's not in it for himself. He's not in it for money. He's not in it for glory. He's in it because he cares about the sheep. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It shows that we're real, that God's power is real within us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. It's in being broken like a clay pot that the life of Jesus shines forth. In being broken... Christ is seen more clearly. And that's why he says in verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. It's because it's producing life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I die every day. Why? Because he wants to see life. He wants to see people saved from darkness. He wants to see the church no longer face misery on account of their own folly and ignorance. He wants to see the church love itself. And he's willing to pay whatever price is necessary to see that each member of the body of Christ is growing in Christ's likeness. And so it validates the message of the messenger when we suffer. Secondly, it, it's a means of grace. James chapter 1 in verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's something about trials and suffering that produce spiritual maturity. It's a means of grace. Romans 5.3 says suffering produces endurance, which leads to growth in other areas of Christian maturity. So just as God uses the word and prayer to bring about Christian maturity, likewise, he also brings suffering has that same effect. And just as through Christ's suffering, many were made righteous, so also His grace continues to work through the church's suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we've, this is our scripture reading today. Remember, as Paul listed all the different ways that he suffered on behalf of the church, he then writes this in verse 15. He says, For it is all for your sake, so that His grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I just want you to see that. As he suffers, grace extends to people. And as grace extends to people, people will grow in maturity. And what's the effect? The glory of God. So Paul's suffering for the sake of the church brings about the glory of God. The two are, are work together. God is most glorified in the growth of the body of Christ. We'll see this a little bit later. He says in verse 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The affliction is actually preparing for us glorification. So Paul rejoices because he he recognized this suffering isn't purposeless. And it's not just run-of-the-mill suffering that we all face, that we all grieve over and hate, that it exists still in this world. But this suffering, because it is for the sake of the body, is like Christ's suffering, who chose to suffer. Because the goal was so worth it. God is using the suffering to accomplish something worth far more than the price of pain. God is bringing about something that is far more value than pain. Or it's worth the price of pain. And that's the sanctification of the church. The beautification of Christ's bride. The the thesis statement of of all of John Piper's ministry, many of you know, is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And that is an amazingly accurate statement. But I want to just turn it a little bit in light of what Paul says here. To make a statement that's just as equally biblical. And that is this. God is most glorified when the church is most beautified or you could say sanctified and the difference between the two is that piper focuses on the affections of the individual towards god 
My statement focuses upon a greater goal. The, 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 the full maturity of the body of Christ. Right? The idea being that each member loves God fully, then the whole will glorify God more fully. Right? God is glorified when we love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it shouldn't just remain self-focused. If we really do love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're going to love others as well. Right? The second part of that commandment. Peter tells us that the result of ministering our spiritual gifts for one another's growth will be the glory of God. First Peter four, 10 through 11, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. See the connection as the church serves itself through God's grace and ministering the, the spiritual gifts to one another. God will be glorified. Another text about the glory of God. You know it well. First Corinthians ten twenty four Begins by saying, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then it leads to verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jew or to Greek or to church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Paul's point is, as I invest myself in the church, I don't think about what I want. I just think about what people need. And as, as that happens, God is glorified. So we need to recognize that, yes, God is most glorified in us when we're satisfied in him, but that introspection should lead to circumspection meaning we need to not just look inward about our and dwell on our own affections for god which is great and we should have be satisfied in our love for god but if we are that should turn ourselves outward and we should be recognizing my life is should be spent in seeing the church grow into christ likeness it's the church that matters it's not our own affections that matter they matter, but not like the church matters. God is most glorified when the church is most sanctified. And so if we really want to glorify God, we'll not be content just to delight in him, but to devote, devote ourselves to, the, to one another's growth. And notice that this is Paul's point, that he suffers not to exalt himself, not to prove himself. He's not trying to impress others. But that he recognizes that he, he doesn't matter. He's just a tool. What matters is the church, the growth of the church. It's not the individual builders that are significant. We are so impressed by individuals. But at the end of the day, what an individual accomplishes is of little significance. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He plants 
and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, because we're fellow, God's fellow workers. But this is the point. You are God's field. You are God's building. It's not me that matters. I suffer because I recognize I don't matter, but what matters is the church. Just like, you think that, using that illustration, Notre Dame, nobody remembers the builders of Notre Dame. But they remember the church. They remember the cathedral. They see the cathedral. They, They visit the cathedral. There's probably millions of visitors every year. But probably very few even think, well, who built this? And probably most of those people who did build it are forgotten. And frankly, they don't matter. The servant of all recognizes they don't matter. Remember that Jesus said, the greatest among you will be slave of all. Because they recognize they don't matter. It's not their life. It's not their accomplishments. It's not their reputation. It's certainly not their comfort. It's the glorification of the church so that God would be glorified. And that's why the cost of ministry, being suffering, is worth it. One of my favorite characters in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia uh, is the unknown knight in the story of the horse and his boy. At the end of the book, the main character Shasta discovers that he was actually originally born a prince and he was kidnapped as an infant and his life was saved eventually by an unnamed knight who took him into a small boat during a great sea battle and after telling his friends the story he says and that boat was never seen again but of course that was the same boat that Aslan he seems to be at the back of all these stories Pushed ashore at the right place for Arshish to pick me up. I wish I had known that knight's name, for he must have kept me alive and starved himself to do it. The reason Paul tells the Colossians about his suffering for them is because he wants them to know how serious their faith is to him. He's not saying it for them to be impressed by himself. He wants them to see your faith, your salvation, first of all, and then your faith, the the, the steadfastness of your faith, having full confidence in the work of Christ and his love for you. It's worth that faith is worth all the suffering in the world. That's how precious it is. He wants the Colossians to realize what they've been given. So he's not trying to give them a guilt trip. He's not trying to be sensational or inspiring. He's simply trying to show them that your faith is worth my agony. It's worth all the loss in the world. Because it was worth Christ's agony. And so Christ, we thank you. That you considered us worth anything and yet you were willing to pay the most the greatest price of all for our salvation that of a a precious blood of a lamb 
God, You gave Your only Son so that we might be saved. And I pray that You would help us to recognize the ongoing struggle that we need to have in making sure that each member stays saved, so to speak. That doesn't fall away. And that, that we would that we'd be so pressed by the importance of one another's spiritual growth that, that we would put more attention, more effort, more prayer, more work into making sure each one is cared for. So that the, so Satan cannot get a foothold in any of our lives, in any of our marriages, in, in any of our children. Lord, that we would recognize what really matters in life as a church. And I ask just for me personally that you would help me to grow up and be the pastor that you've called me to be. And that I would not repine or murmur to whatever you bring my way for the sake of your church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.